Happy Monday, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Mark Claire Show, the 50th episode to be exact. It's almost been one year. So grateful for all of you who've been tuning in, sharing the show, leaving five-star ratings and great reviews, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and supporting the show in all the ways that you can on Patreon, subscribe star, Rockfin. Uh, without your support, I would not be doing the show. I can say that factually. Whether that support is financial or whether you're just tuning in and uh, being a part of this thing, I couldn't, wouldn't do it if nobody was listening. So I'm really glad uh, to have you out there, to have a growing audience, and to have my guest today, my friend Dave Smith. I'm very excited to have have him on this platform for the first time. Of course, we've spoken many, many times over on Lions of Liberty. Before I get to that, you know how I was able to stay up late tonight on Friday the 13th when we recorded this? Because look, I'm an old man. I'm in my 40s. I can't just stay up late. That's hard, except it's not because I got this. If you're watching the video, I got to turn it around. Hey, I'm not a professional when it comes to this. This is my one pound bag of my Fox and Sons coffee that I get delivered every single month to my door from my man, Stephen Fox. He pers- I'm not sure if he personally delivers it. It might be a male guy. It might be Stephen himself. I don't know, but this thing shows up my door every single month. And I go to foxandsons.com, as you should do too. I don't use the discount code. I'll be honest. I have my own situation, okay? But you should use discount code MCS, MCS for 18% off your order. Get yourself some fine, fine coffee beads from my man, Stephen Fox, who started this company with his sons to teach them about entrepreneurship, hence the Fox and Sons. F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. Use discount code MCS for 18% off your order. My friends, enjoy my conversation with Dave Smith. All right, friends, it's finally happened. The crossover you've been waiting for with me today. He is a stand-up comedian, a podcaster, host of the Part of the Problem podcast, one of the Legion of Skanks. He is many, many things. One thing he's not, though, is a presidential candidate. I'm pleased to welcome uh, <laughs> Dave Smith. Welcome to my show. First time here, believe it or not. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I mean, many times on your old Lines of Liberty show. We had some real classics there, buddy. We really did. I, it's funny. I see. I see some of those old debates and shows uh, get ref. Some I'm some of which I'm prouder of than others uh, get referenced all the time in uh, you know random Twitter talks and whatnot. So they will uh, forever live in infamy. You might say it was the perfect. Wasn't it like a? It was like the perfect like um, the perfect explanation or whatever. It's probably a better word than that. The perfect like microcosm of the internet yes. was that right? I had these debates with uh, Eric Brakey and Tho Bishop that were like really interesting, really like I, I thought like really intelligent debates that were certainly like in the eye of the beholder. Anyone could have argued, I think, that either me or them won those debates. And they were like, really, I think both of us made some really good points. Even I at points was kind of like, oh, that guy's making a really good point. Mm-hmm. And then that like they did, a, they did good numbers, but just me smacking down retards. But a meme in the corner just, for forty-five just minutes crushed them. Like it was like so many more people just wanted to watch that that shit show. Yeah, it really is. I, I look back on those days, like uh, like kind of like my college days, you know, partying and whatnot. Like I, I never want to do all that stuff again. But uh, but I'm glad I did it. You know, I'm glad I'm glad I have the memories. Yes. Uh, do you ever uh, you know how like um Ben Shapiro and I think Jordan Peterson and a lot of those guys. And I'm not I'm not saying like Jordan Peterson for sure had like some more like substantive stuff. But you know how like they like kind of rose to fame by like arguing with college kids about right, whether right. there's 72 genders or not. And like, I, I, I do kind of feel like- your college kid? Yes. But, but like, I, I, if it makes sense, I do feel like that was kind of necessary. Like, like, it's almost like 2016, 2017, like we did need some of that. But looking back at it, you're like, Jesus, like this was, this was like your impressive moment. Whereas there, there'd be like some college kid who's, who's like, I could be a man if I want to be a woman. And, and Ben Shapiro's like, why can't you be a Trey? And everyone's like, oh, <laughs> you, oh, you crushed that. You know, you crushed that chick. And you're like, whoa, what was this moment? And so like at the time, it seemed like it made Simpler sense. Time. But it, looking back on it, you're like, wait, I can't believe I ever did that. Yeah, at least the Brakey and, and Tho Bishop debates were more about, you know, the direction of the liberty movement and, and that that sort of thing. Uh, but those other ones before that, which I, I was that after, I think it was actually after COVID, which is the crazy it was, thing. I think it was in 2020. It was while all the, the crazy shit was going on. I guess that was before we had a chance to wrap our minds around the serious shit that was going on. So we just, uh, you know, we just dived into uh, memes and trolling. <laughs> yeah. Well, like at least with Eric and Tho, it was like, they were like intelligent people who were like making a compelling argument. Um, but I do think that like, yeah, with some of the other stuff, it was kind of like, 
Yeah, maybe maybe there's some truth to that, that it's like it took a little while, I think, for people to really understand what exactly the significance of what was happening was. It's hard. It, it's, it's a little bit hard, I guess, when you're in the middle of the storm. It's like the longer it lasts, you kind of get like, whoa, this is really something. And for, for those people not in the weeds, because believe it or not, I do have a lot of people that have come onto the show that did not follow me over from Lions of Liberty that didn't even come from the whole libertarian world. Uh, so everybody might not all, you know, the, know the entire background, but a very short version, I guess you could say. At, at one point, well, you're still heavily involved in the Mises Caucus and the Mises Caucus takeover of the Libertarian Party. And for a while, uh, for a few years, I'd say you were largely hyped as the one of the potential, or at least like the, the people that were, the most people were rallying around uh, potential presidential candidates for 2024. I think it was a month or two ago that you officially said you're not going to be doing that. So maybe we can just get into the reasons actually you decided not to pursue that path, especially after, you know, I had a lot of people seem like they were really hyped up about it. I know a lot of people, it was the main reason they were, it, it was a reason that a lot of these debates were going on. It was kind of the reason that a lot of people were coming after you. A lot of those people from um, that other part of the Libertarian Party, uh, because they were they saw, I think, a lot of attention focus going towards yourself and the Mises Caucus. So why did you decide not to continue in that specific direction anyway? Well, it was really um, it, and, and like the, the part of that was it was it was really our group taking over the party. And then as that started to happen, it was kind of like, you know, I started like really considering it. And I'll, at, at one point, I was really planning on doing it. I was like, actually, for a while, I was pretty. I was pretty certain I was going to do it. And it was really just like family stuff that ultimately um, made me kind of change my mind. It's, it's just, um, I, you know, I, I went through a lot of stuff um, over the last couple of years. I mean, you know about this, um, but I, I had a son. Um, me and my wife had our second child. He had um, a very serious heart condition and needed open heart surgery. Um, it was kind of like this whole very traumatic thing. Um, extended stay in the in the NICU, uh, taking care of him, nursing him back to health for months and months. And it was kind of like, it, all of that was going on. And I was planning on, um, in my mind, I guess I just thought, okay, when, um, by the time this next presidential cycle comes around, all of this will have been resolved, everything will be fine. And then I could go like take on this next thing. And what kind of weirdly ended up happening was, when, which I, I don't know, maybe this is something about like the burden of being a man. But when all of the the traumatic stuff was happening, I was totally like had it together. Like I was just kind of like, I'm not feeling any of this. I'm being strong for my family. We're going to get through this, and this is fine. Mm -hmm. And and uh, by the way, my son's doing great now. In case I don't want to leave good. anyone in suspense there. Um, but uh, <laughs> but it was kind of almost like after everything resolved itself, and um and everything was fine, that then, very weirdly, then I started to really feel all of it. Mm. And it was a, a very, it was a very difficult time um, for me. And, and my wife, I think I kind of underestimated the, the scars of that whole event. And then as we actually started getting ready for like, okay, we would have to, this is what we'd have to start doing now. This is what the family would have to go through. This is what we kind of have to sacrifice. I, I just... I just realized it just wasn't the right thing. It wasn't right for my family. It wasn't probably the best thing for me and definitely not the best thing for my wife and my kids to do. And I just kind of was like, I, I was at this weird place where I was just like, okay, my first obligation has to be doing what's right for my wife and kids. And um, I, I feel bad uh, about the way the whole thing went. I think if I could go back and do it again, I wouldn't have kind of flirted with something that I wasn't going to follow through with doing. Um, I, I just didn't... I, I honestly miscalculated where I would be when the moment came. And I just... Uh, w once it got to that point, I was just like, I have to err on the side of doing what's right for, for my family. So that's more or less the story. I don't know, man. Sounds like you just don't care about liberty that much to me. <laughs> that's that's another way to put it. <laughs> Not um, as much as I care about my wife and kids. For it's sure. interesting what you said though um, about how you know you you didn't feel it so much in the moment that you were going through all those really difficult times because and I I I think I can kind of relate to this like when when you go through the actual traumatic moment sometimes you don't actually have the time to even wrap your head around it because someone's got to sort of take the mantle and, and just kind of get their head straight and say, all right, this is what we got to do. We got to go here. We got to do this. It just needs to get done. So you can't really 
absorb the emotion of it. Something in our minds, maybe it is a, a man thing or something that just can block that off and put it aside for a minute. So it's maybe only when those things calm down that you can actually look at the bigger picture and and look at what's important and kind of you know assess the situation in a way that you didn't you couldn't have even done at the time. Well, it's also you know I I, I compare it to um so like I like I grew up in Brooklyn in the eighties and nineties. I've and I've had a, a gun pulled on me like a few times, but there's one time ever where I got jumped and like a guy put a gun to my head and there were like six of them. And uh, they, the guy put the gun to my head and I was just kind of like, all right, dude, you got me. And they all, these guys all like went through my pockets and stuff and took everything. Um, and then they, they all ran off and I, I went into my apartment building where I was living at the time. And anyway, I remember like people asking me about it and they were like, dude, that must've been so scary when the guy had the gun to your head. And I was like, and this is true. It, weirdly, it was not at all scary when the guy had the gun to my head. It was actually, it was like an unbelievable, like moment of calm. Like, all right, uh, he needs my wallet. I guess yes. I give that to him. It, <laughs> yes, it was so like that. It was like, it's, there's never been like more clarity in my life than that moment where it was just kind of like, okay, I need to get from point A to point B. Point right. A is this guy has a gun to my head. Point B is I'm somewhere safe. That's all that matters in life right now. Nothing else is important. And, and like, it was just very... And then the second I got inside, it was like, whoosh. And then I just felt all of it. It was like, oh my God. Like, th that was insane what just happened. And so there was something kind of like that. Um, and when, you know, when you're going through this crisis, I mean, it was really crazy for a while where I was like, uh, my wife was like falling to pieces. We might lose our baby. I still have another, I have a daughter, you know, at home that I have to make sure we're like, I have to pull my wife out of this and myself out of this to make sure in the worst case scenario that we're still like able to go give her everything she deserves. And it was almost like, um, it was like calming and a moment of like clarity. It's like, I know what I have to do. I have to get from point A to point B. And then once that was over and he's good and my wife's good and my daughter's good, then it was almost like I could look back at it. And there's also something where, um, you know, I've, I, anybody who's, who's a parent, I'm sure can kind of relate to this, particularly a dad. I, it might be a little bit different for moms because they kind of like have this like weird chemical connection and the baby's like growing inside of them. But for dads, it's not that you don't love your baby the second they come out of the womb like you do. You have a feeling of love. You certainly have a feeling of like responsibility. Um, but as they grow, you fall more in love with them. Like it's, it's a whole different thing. Like it's horrible when people have like miscarriages or something like that. But it's a different thing if you lost like your one-year-old. Like you may never be able to recover from that. Because once they're one, they're like in your life and you love them. And, you're, and at, as my son was like one, one and a half, two, it's like, You'd almost, I, I almost look at him and the, the connection, the relationship we have right now, and then thinking back about the fact that he went through all of that and that I almost lost him and like all of that. Then it started, it like weighs so much more than even going through it at the time. So it was just, it was a whole thing that I did not, uh, that I did not see coming um, and really kind of caught me off guard. It was a very difficult uh, time for me. I'm actually doing, I'm doing a lot better now than I was um, uh, earlier in the year. But that was uh that was that was very challenging, and it just I I just wasn't in a position to like be like okay now I'm going to take on this like insane monster of a thing that is guaranteed to like the the nature of it is that it's guaranteed to require a huge sacrifice for my family, mm -hmm. and I just kind of couldn't do that. I couldn't like do another thing like that to them. Like it would the 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 guarantee of it is that it would be like. I'd be making way less money. I'd be away from my family way more. I'd be under way more stress. There'd be way more attacks on me. And at, at the time when I was first... If you thought Archie I, was bad, I mean, watch yeah, out. There was, yeah, I might have had to deal with some slightly more than, than that. Um, but at the time, I was like very prepared. Like, I don't care. I'm, I'm built for this. I'll go do all of that. But it was kind of like after dealing with all of that family stuff, it just, it just wasn't the right decision. And I didn't, I didn't like... I didn't make the decision to consider running lightly and I didn't make the decision to bail out lightly. There were like a lot of discussions with me and my wife. There were a lot of discussions with all of the people involved, but it just, this is just kind of, I think this was the right, the right move for me and my family. 
were you at all worried about, um, I don't know, backlash or people being pissed off that that they maybe put their hopes on David Smith presidential run, whether or not you said that was going to happen or not? A lot of people I know told decided that that was going to happen or really were hoping it was going to happen. So how much of that were you kind of thinking about? Obviously, whatever anybody, any random Joe thinks is not as important as your family at the end of the day anyway. Well, I just I, I want to like try to say this the right way. I was not worried. It's not that I'm worried about backlash or anything like that because like from a self-interested point of view, there, there was no like real concern about that necessarily because just the reality of the situation, I don't mean to like sound like an asshole if I say this, but the reality of the situation is that I am a, my thing is much bigger than the Libertarian Party. Uh, like that, like I just mean like, like numbers wise, like the, you know what I mean? Like the, the percentage of my audience that is LP dues paying members is, I, I mean, I, I don't exactly know, but all of the LP dues paying members are like a 20th of my audience. So like, it's not like the things I do are kind of much bigger than the libertarian party. Um, so it wasn't like I was like, oh my God, this might hurt me. I don't know how all the laws people- work. Would you would you actually have to stop doing other stuff in the podcasting end of things? Or obviously just time-wise, you wouldn't be able to do the same kind of- Well, there, you know, there'd be a lot of time or- things I wouldn't be able to do um, nearly as much like, uh, whoa, what's that? Did The Undertaker just come out? Talk about spooky. <laughs> This is what happens when we do a Friday the 13th episode on the Day of Jihad. You never know what might happen. Happy Day of Jihad, by the way. I forgot to... Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. I had a pretty good, I had a pretty good Day of Jihad. How was it? Any? Uh, did you feel the rage? <laughs> no. It's, it's, it never even was a Day of Jihad, but whatever. Anyway. Uh, all right. I could, I could finish... Uh, uh, we'll just smoothly transition. There, there will have well, been an edit say, here at some point. But yeah, we lost power on Friday the 13th. There you go. I did, I did just want to say, because it was kind of... It sounds like what I'm saying is more uh, of an asshole thing to say than when I Yeah, I think I we left off telling us how, how awesome you are and how much better everything you do is than the LP. That's <laughs> something like that. Well, I was just saying that it's, it wasn't like there was like a concern of like, oh, this could be bad for me. But I do feel like, um, I do feel guilty about the whole thing. And I feel very bad if like I let people down who were like hoping that this would happen. And um, I feel that, uh, that me not running did leave uh, kind of a, a void and a little bit of like um uh, uh like a split within uh, like that movement that I that probably wouldn't have been there if I was running so I do feel very bad about that um and uh I I do feel genuinely It's a little wild out there people. on Twitter I'll tell you that it's, Huh? <laughs> it's a little wild out there on Twitter right now I'll tell you that Yeah well it's wild all around on Twitter uh I see all, sure. all these guys I used to hang out with and go to conventions with and they're all fighting each other I'm not even I don't even want to get into it but you know it's it's a uh, yeah it's it's not, I I think that shows growth in myself because a couple of years ago I would have been involved in it and commenting snarkily on it and I'm not so I think that maybe I've maybe I've advanced a little bit Well it is it is for sure whether you feel like um being involved in politics is important or not. Um, and I certainly get the argument for why it is. In fact, I, I agree with the argument for why it is, but there is no question that politics is just a poisonous thing that mm-hmm. turns people against each other who like would be friends. You know what I mean? And yeah, you see it. Then this is true. At, like every, every level of politics where you just see like people like kind of viciously go after each other for purely political reasons it's it, there's something really sad and ugly about it yeah that's what blows my mind when i i, I see that kind of level of vitriol and I, i've seen i'm not just talking about it now i've seen it since i started sort of peeking my head into the libertarian party world uh, maybe five or six years ago just seeing all of the and i'm not again i'm not referring to the guys right now at all but i've seen a lot of like backstabbing type stuff like sneaking around plotting and i guess that's just part of politics but to see it at the level of of the of the the party of principle, the idea that we're supposed to be rejecting all that, but to do it for no, you're not fighting over power, you're yeah. fighting over a mantle. And and I'm not even debating the worthiness of the mantle, but if if that's the point of it, then that stuff just seems so much more out of place. But I guess that is just the nature of it in the, at the end of the day. Yeah, there's some, yeah, there is just something about the nature of politics, but I get your point. It's not like, you know, you see like uh, like DeSantis and Trump maybe were like, uh, like friends and allies or something like that before, but now they're like throwing, ch- but you're like, at least I get it. You're both trying to be president of the United States of America. <laughs> right. Like there's a big like prize at the end of this, but when it's in like third 
third party politics, you're just kind of like, what are we even like really? We're getting this vicious over who gets to maybe be the like vice chair of the LNC or something. It's very, it's very bizarre. It almost seems more vicious than real politics sometimes because I mean, I, I see the like a lot of these guys in the LP. I mean, they will go all the way, they'll go deep on getting into your family, your kids, all this stuff, stuff that you don't really even see in, in the Republican and Democratic Party as, as much. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe in some ways, because that's like, uh, for, for a lot of these guys, that's kind of like, it is their entire identity. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's, that's, uh, that's a major issue that I think a lot of people in the libertarian party have had, I think, um, particularly with kind of like the old guard who we overthrew, they really had that. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why there was so much vitriol toward me coming into the Libertarian Party and kind of leading like this influx of new people in. Um, but I, I don't think our group is necessarily like immune from that either. I've seen some of that as well. But there is something where um, I don't know. I I think I've I'd like to think at least I've, I'm a little bit fortunate in that in the Libertarian world I was never immersed in it in the in like the sense of my actual life. Like I don't like, um, like I'm, I'm in the comedy world. It's like, my best friends are like comedian. Like my best friends are like Lewis and Jay and like uh, comedians. And I have a family, I have a career. It's all, it's all kind of separate from that. Like I love podcasting with all the libertarian guys. And I love kind of like talking about the, the, the you know, like what's going on in the world and what I believe in and stuff like that. But there's a lot of people in the Libertarian Party who like, this is their whole world. Like these are their friends. This is their identity. This is their whole thing that they do. Like they work some job that they fucking hate. And then they're in, they have this position in the Libertarian Party. And that's kind of the thing that they hang on to as their identity. And I think this is something you've talked about a decent amount um, in, in over the last couple of years. But there's something really poisonous about making your political ideology your entire identity, no matter what it is. Yeah, even if it's the right one. And I think another, the flip side of that too, is you can tend, and I'm saying this because I probably, I did this a lot maybe when in my youth, you know, when, once you get immersed in the philosophy and you start to see the state as the ultimate evil and every every ill that's happening comes down to the, the state generically, whoever that may be, uh, you can start to actually blame your own problems on, on the state when that becomes your entire identity. You say, oh, well, you know, shit, I'd be doing better if I wasn't paying so many taxes, I'd be able to have a better place and then I could get a better girlfriend and then, you know, you can you can just lead yourself to to if when that's your entire identity you can lead yourself to just as the positive you think that everything you do has to be in promoting liberty you can also think that every negative in your in your life is due to this monster known as the state that's sort of lurking in the shadows which a lot right and like a lot of these things it could right so it can turn into kind of like a victim complex which a lot of these things like um which I, I'm sure a lot of people would recognize in many different areas of having this kind of like victim you know grievance uh, ideology is it it could even be true but it's still so unproductive to view things that way like it it might be the case that like yeah if you didn't have to pay so many taxes for like some you know you know criminal bullshit you know like war that we were lied into or something you'd have more resources you could do more for yourself you'd be fine like all of that might be true but it's also just so um such a devastating way to view life by putting yourself in the position of being a victim. Um, and that, that really like, it's so much more productive to view yourself as somebody who like, you're the only one responsible for anything that you don't have in the world and that it's all on you to make sure you have it. Uh, I would also say, and, and for the record here, I mean, look, I, I know like you and, and, and a, a, a group of people, kind of re-questioned uh, questioned a lot of like their libertarian dogma over the last uh, few years and have, have rejected a lot of it. I am not one of those guys. I, I have, I'd say I've questioned a lot of the libertarian views and basically come to the conclusion that I still think it's all right. Um, I still think everything about it's correct. But I, I would say that there's a few um, tendencies for people who believe in libertarianism to fall into that are very, very destructive. And one of the things about libertarianism that I think, <laughs> there's, there's a few, but one of the things that I think is, is uh, unfortunate that comes along with libertarianism is that you can, you can 
get not that far into reading libertarian literature before it dawns on you that you know the answer to everything. Yes. And like you don't like, need to get that far at all. I, you you really don't. You're like you could be like three or four essays in, and yep. you go, I get it. The anatomy of the state might be enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, but the answer to any, I have the answer to any political question that comes up, and it's privatize it, free market, anti-war, non-aggression principle. And again, just to be clear here, I'm saying I actually do think those are the correct answers to like every political question. Like I'm a total ANCAP, and I think that. Like, I think the foreign policy should be that there shouldn't be a foreign policy. And I think the economic policy should be that there shouldn't be an economic policy. Like, I agree with all of that. But there is something kind of poisonous about um, a, a, a line of thinking that allows you to think you've figured it all out when you're a 101 student. You know what I mean? And uh, like, that's really bad. And, and the truth is that things are enormously more complex than we will ever be able to understand. And I wish more libertarians would keep that in mind, that even if the correct answer is to let the market decide, that doesn't mean that you've like, you have anything of value to say. <laughs> like, you, you have to have something more than that to say. And there's, there's like near infinitely more variables that are very important than just that one thing. So there's something kind of poisonous about that. There's also something poisonous about libertarianism where it, it, it attracts a lot of people who um, are kind of just rebelling against authority of any kind. And they're just kind of like, it, it attracts this kind of like, well, yeah, I don't want to be told that I can't do anything. And as long as I'm mm -hmm. not aggressing against anyone else, then there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. And you're like, well, that's not actually not at all the the philosophy, like the, the philosophy would say that if you're not aggressing against anyone else, you shouldn't be like beat over the head with a baton. Right. But it doesn't necessarily say that you shouldn't feel really awful about yourself mm -hmm. or that you shouldn't have negative, you know, consequences associated with your actions. And, and so th there's a lot about libertarianism. While I don't reject any of it, I do think there's a lot of things that have a tendency to attract some very immature and, um, not positive type of, you know, like um, people with, with certain psychological traits or a certain mind state that is not good. Yeah, I don't know what it is about. I don't know if it's something about the philosophy itself or if this is just something that happens with various things. But I, And I can say this because I was one of these assholes who just really thought that because I had read my Rothbard, uh, I'd taken my, my daily servings of anatomy of the state, I understood how the state worked. I understood that every problem was because the state got involved. And I couldn't, I, I truly couldn't, I think, understand why other people didn't get it. And that, that's what, I don't know why that was so hard. And it would, it would make me angry. It would upset me. I actually get very, very upset that people weren't understanding what I was saying. But when I look back now, it's like a lot of the times I wasn't saying anything. I was just saying, I was stating the, th the thing. I was making the statement uh, or saying, go read this. Um, and I, for some reason, I, I think there are, is it, I, don't, I don't know if it's that it attack, uh, attracts the, the people with that tendency or if it's something about, maybe because it is very correct in a lot of things. So you, you do see the truth in it and then you think, well, because I found the truth, it's as simple as just relaying the truth. It's as simple as simple as just waking people up. And the reality of that is when you when you approach it that way, it just it just simply doesn't work because people aren't wired wired to be beaten over the head with something until they wake up. Yeah, and also, well, I, I do think that certainly a lot of libertarian a lot of libertarianism appeals to people who would be interested in ideas like that or would be interested in philosophy or kind of, you know, like thinking these things through. And look, to me, as far as I'm concerned, I think anatomy of the state, I look at it more as like a proof than anything else. Like, I don't I don't actually think anything he says, uh, Murray Rothbard, if people don't know what we're talking about, I don't think anything he says in that essay is even really debatable. It's kind of like a factual statement. But still, if you're like, yo, you read a pamphlet and now you think you know more than everybody in the world, you're like, okay, there's a problem there. And most people, like I, you know, I, I know, uh, for example, like my father-in-law, who's a, he's a, a truck driver and he's a, 
been like a, a blue collar worker his entire life. I mean, he he dropped out of high school, I think, when he was 15 because his dad got him a fake driver's license so he could start being a trucker. And he's just like... That's blue. Been, now that's blue collar. And he's been <laughs> like a trucker. I mean, I think he had some other jobs in there too, but he's been a truck driver for most of his life. He's 70 now. And, um, you know, if I, if I were to start talking to him, we talk politics a lot. He's a very smart guy. Um, but if I start talking to him about like the non-aggression principle or something like that, he's just like, what? Like, what? But if I start talking to him about like why like prices are out of control mm-hmm. and why he's getting ripped off at the pump or something like that, he's like, yes. Okay, let me tell you right. this. And this was the last time. It was, and then you also realize that it's like, okay, like I might know this stuff about philosophy that he doesn't know about, but he'll be like, listen, let me tell you what driving a truck in 1973 was like. And let me tell you what going through Ohio was like. That and you're and you're like, oh, there's this wealth of knowledge that he has that I have nothing, even in comparison to. And so, okay, may, like I, I'm saying, everything in anatomy of the state is right, but still, it's like, who the hell are you to go lecture this guy about what's really going on in the world? This guy who's like, you know, in in many cases smarter than you, has a thousand times more life experience than you, and understands a lot of other things that you may not understand on a much deeper level. And so that's that's what I... Um, and I do think like that that's one of the things that I've tried my best to kind of like bring into the libertarian world is that just kind of idea that it's like, no, it's not enough to just say like, oh, I've, I've read these five books and I've memorized these 60 talking points. And now I can go take on the world. Like there's much more to it than that. I think about how much you have to learn just about life, spending decades driving, just driving around the country and talking to people and seeing people of at every different time of day and night yep. of every single walk of life and every single little nugget of land here. Um, I think you might, even if you don't, even if you never read a book that whole time, you would probably know a lot more about how people actually operate in the real world than somebody that stayed home and read books for those same decades. Yeah, and and understand what has happened to this country, what the changes have been, what the country used to be like compared to what the country is now. You know what I mean? Like, there's just a lot of things like that where he'll be like, oh, oh whoa, let me tell you about what all these little towns used to be like compared to what they are now. And how like much, you know, more, while they may not be like um, poorer in terms of like some chart on GDP, that it's like, no, these used to be like together communities and now they're totally broken apart. Like that's, there's something interesting about the the, the job of being a truck driver where it's like, oh, you really kind of intimately experience the entire country. All right. Well, I don't know if there's a smooth uh, transition necessarily into the weirder, wilder realm that I, I want to get into with, but I, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't at least uh, try to get some some weird questions out of you today, Dave. So, <laughs> um, well, heck, since it's Friday the 13th, let's just start with, with some easy stuff. What's your favorite horror movie? Are, are you into the horror genre at all? Um, I, mean, I had the power go out once. That I thought I was in a that, horror movie for a minute. Well, favorite horror movie? I don't know. Maybe The Shining. Okay, that's say, on my list. That's on my, was, it's like on my list. Like in all time. But I, I, I'm always like, I'm a sucker for the movies that scared the shit out of me the most when I was a little kid. So the first horror movie I ever saw was The Nightmare on Elm Street. And it gave me, oh my God, it like it, you know, I was six and it just like destroyed my world. And I had nightmares for weeks after it. So there's always something about that movie that I think was, uh, like holds a special place in my heart and Chucky, those movies always really got me when I was a kid. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's the ones with the sense of humor. That's what I like about both Freddie and Chucky. They like, not only do they like to cause uh, mayhem and havoc and whatnot, they, they, they like to crack jokes along the way. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. Which is pretty funny that Freddie was just cracking jokes along the way. And I love that the whole movie is setting you. I love when they're setting you up to be like, Oh my God, you framed him for, for uh, like raping all these kids. And then it's like, Oh, no, Oh no. Oh, no, he raped these kids. Oh, no, he did it, yeah. Oh, he did it. No, that guy has been cracking jokes the whole time about ruining you. Oh, no, no, he did it. And he quite enjoyed it. No, they were right. They did the right thing. And he is a he real joke. He came back. Yeah. 
<laughs> and he never lost a sense of humor the whole time, which I, which I really appreciate. Those movies get better. I mean, they get more and more ridiculous, but uh, they like in the beginning, it's it's a horror. It's a definite horror movie where Freddy kind of cracks jokes. By like six or seven in, it's just a full like slapstick like comedy fest. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. At a certain point. Stuff. But I still enjoyed those. I liked Freddy vs. Jason, which was totally like... Totally just like a slapstick, you know, movie. That way it was almost like the, the point of this isn't even to scare you anymore. This is just kind of like nostalgic and fun. Um, but I like uh I kind of I don't know if this is like qual qualifies as like horror movies, but I kind of do like like in I like intense thrillers that are kind of scary. Um I actually I really liked Get Out. I thought Get Out was really yeah, good. Yeah. I thought I thought there were like some interesting themes on that. They kind of hit on the whole like um like white liberals, you know, like the, the guy who keeps like the the guy keeps bragging about how he would vote for Obama a third time mm -hmm. if he could. Meanwhile, he's tr kind of trying to trap the soul of this young black man. I thought that was a cool flick. Um, I don't know. What do you like, Mark? What are your favorite horror movies? How do you grade uh, me on the movies I just answered? Uh, very highly, because Nightmare on Elm Street is is I actually just did a top five horror movie uh, episode on my uh, my other nerdy podcast, Second Print Comics, uh, and my number one was Nightmare on Elm Street. So we're we're right in the same wavelength. Um, I, I just always like when the I think it's even scarier when the villain is is just like making silly jokes the whole time while he's you know. You know, slicing your face open or, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, if someone if so. someone was gonna like kill me and slice my face open, I'd I'd much prefer they be serious about it the whole time. Than, like, <laughs> I just think start I would going, appreciate like, it. You know, like, nice shoes, faggot. And you're like, oh come on, dude. Like right now, I'm terrified. All right. Well, I'm sorry. Can maybe, I not say that? Are we on YouTube? What oh, you can say. Oh, maybe. I mean, I, I don't talk to them about what they what what they what they want want or don't not. I, I've been under the radar a little bit. I've been when I first started the show, I kind of would be more careful with YouTube and, and that sort of thing. And now they haven't struck me yet, so I'm just keeping. I keep sort of expanding the Overton window about what we can say. What we can very say. good. Yes, you can say that word for sure. I won't um, again. So. You know, as you know, this this show kind of gets into a little of the little of the weirder and wilder realms of things. And I think when you're immersed in politics and uh, talking about the events of the day and whatnot, it's hard not to overlap, especially nowadays when what you might call the sort of conspiracy culture or conspiracy end of of the alt media, whatever you might want to say, it overlaps so much with what is really going on. Uh, even if it's even just at the surface level of, let's say, a Jeffrey Epstein, um, it, stuff like that, that, that is real news stories, they often can be easily tied back into some crazy sounding shit that someone like Alex Jones or what have you was saying 10, 15 years ago. And you look back and, and at some point you're just saying, well, is the conspiracy stuff just the truth, but but behind, you know, it's, it sounds too crazy to accept at the time, or is it really just, you know, a distraction? And I, I go through that myself a lot too, because I think one of the reasons I hesitated to go so far into the conspiracy realm back when I was on Lions of Liberty is because I didn't want to associate that brand and libertarianism with some of the crazier, kookier stuff. Uh, that being said, there's a lot of crazy, kooky stuff, and some of it ends up turning out to be truer than you might have thought at some point. So I'm just curious your general thoughts on sort of the overlap between doing sort of a uh, what you might call mainstream political analysis. You're talking about sort of the events on the news or what have you and how that crosses over with the, I guess the, the conspiracy end of things. Yeah. So I gave a, uh, I, I gave a speech uh, a couple weeks ago at a libertarian uh, um, event here in, uh, in New Jersey. And I said, at, one of the things I said was that I, I was like, look, after the last three years uh, to be a good libertarian means you're a conspiracy theorist. And there's no more, there's no more, uh, gone are the days where we can separate the two. And I don't mean by that that you have to believe in every single conspiracy, but the idea of pretending that like conspiracies are not a big part of what's robbing people of their basic liberties is you're, you're just disconnected from reality at this point after the last three years. And so if, you know, if you were to say, Let's say after what we went through just with, with the COVID stuff between like lockdowns and, uh, you know, 
entire classes by the tens of millions of Americans being deemed as non-essential and the cover-up of the lab leak story and the mass censorship and the vaccine rollout and the lies about the vaccine and the vaccine mandates and passports and all of this. We're, we're really going to try the YouTube thing as much as we can on this one. Well, I, I'll tell you, this <laughs> stuff go is or go okay. Home. This, this, weirdly, this is how it goes. You can kind of talk about this stuff on YouTube now. There's a lot of this stuff that like a year and a half ago you couldn't talk about on YouTube that I I don't know that it'll get flagged now. But anyway, between all of this stuff, it's it's kind of impossible to, to not... Look, if I were to say to you that um, the, the elites want us to eat bugs and own nothing and be happy, and they want a central bank digital currency that they can shut off at any time, and they want... Like, if I were to go through all these things, yes, this sounds like some nutty Alex Jones shit, but I'm just taking the speakers at the WEF at their word. Like, this isn't like, I'm, I'm not saying I heard this from Alex Jones. I'm saying I heard this at presentations at the World Economic Forum. And so after what we've been through in the last three years, I feel like when these people say stuff like that, like, okay, I'm listening. I'm not going to pretend that this is just some goofy shit. Like, the Great Reset is not a term that, like, some nutty conspiracy theorist made up. This this is the term that Klaus Schwab uses. Like it's these the are name what, of his podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Like so, I I I think that um, there's look the I there are obviously and and probably it, it was stupid for us to not kind of just embrace this all along. And I I'm like you. I would always for years try to be like I'm not going to talk about anything that I can't absolutely prove because I don't want to like say something ridiculous and then look bad for getting it wrong. But at, at a certain point, you're like, look, elites conspire. That is a fact. And so obviously, look, killing the lab leak story was a conspiracy. We have Fauci's emails. You can look at it. They all conspired together to kill the story when it was coming out that the COVID came from the Wuhan lab which now the overwhelming evidence points toward it did. And, and for obviously reasons, they killed that story because it would implicate all of the people who were being held up as like the heroes of the response. So, okay, that's just one. But how deep does it go? And I, it, at a certain point, when you at least know some of the things, and like look, you mentioned Epstein, obviously, but just if you really just think about what that was, you're like, okay, so there was a child rapist ring with the most powerful people or many of the most powerful people in our society and in other societies involved in it. And this was known and covered up. There's a hot mic of that ABC reporter that you, you can listen to where she's talking about how she had the whole story and her bosses told her they had to kill it because it would interfere with their relationship with the royal family or something like that. So, okay, so that we know is true. Is that the only one? Are, are we to believe that there's no other child rapist rings that we just haven't uncovered yet? That seems unlikely. That seems unlikely that this was the only blackmail ring and there aren't more of them going on. Why would they only have one? That, that seems like a wilder leap than to assume there are probably others that we haven't found out about yet. So just the more you get into this and, you, and then you're like, Oh, yeah, look, the term conspiracy theory was developed by the CIA to discredit people who had questions about how the president of the United States had his brains blown out on national television by the CIA. You, know? you sound like a conspiracy like, podcaster now. Well, I, welcome. Yeah, look, welcome. I, I am. I'm saying I'm a conspiracy theorist. I think we should all be conspiracy theorists. We should embrace that label. Now, that again, that doesn't mean you have to jump on the wildest shit because there, there definitely are some really stupid conspiracy theories. And I mean, I know they use QAnon as this like punching bag, but if you've ever like actually gone down a rabbit hole and seen how stupid some of the QAnon shit is, it's I, pretty, I have. <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous that they're actually like you know they've they've been saying for it was uh, I've seen a Telegram group run by Michael ja Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll for tell real. you, it's a. Uh, I think they've given up on this now, but for a while they were really convinced that Donald Trump was still the president when he was yes, about to let you know. He was about to let you know him and I think uh, um, Jack Kennedy's kid. 
was was really alive and yeah. was about to come back and all. You know, okay. You're gonna so grainy not, video of like a flag at the White House and they'll be like, that's the real flag of the real president of the real government. That's just yeah, <laughs> yes. Okay. So I'm not saying you have to believe in any of that, but I'm just saying operating still somewhat within the confines of reality. The shit gets pretty wild. And and I, this I have said for a long time, but look, if you think about, um, if you think about as as many libertarians know very well, right? And, and you as someone who's in the libertarian world for a long time, I'm sure you know a lot of this stuff very well. But if you look at like some of the CIA declassified uh, uh, things that the CIA has done over the years, like if you look at Operation Paperclip or Operation Mockingbird or uh, um, what's it called? Um, what am I blanking on? The Nord, uh, uh, Northwoods. Keep, Northwoods. Northwoods. I keep wanting to say Nord Stream. Not the Nord Stream pipeline. Norwood. Operation Northwood. Um, I mean, you're talking about things where Nazis were absorbed into our, our country at the highest levels, where CIA uh, agents were placed within media app, uh, the media apparatus, where they planned on uh, false flags that would uh, kill American citizens in order to set up the pretense for a war. Okay. And then you ask yourself, what haven't we seen? Do you think we've seen it all? Do you think it's all been declassified? Do you think, I mean, my guess would be, this is like, you've seen a couple cockroaches on the top of the rug. And if you were to pull that rug up, there'd be like a thousand more underneath. So the idea of telling anyone that, you know, well, you're kind of being a conspiracy theorist. It's like, all right, I do think that we should try our best to have evidence and at, le at least a credible theory about whatever we talk about, but to like kind of close off this whole thing, like, no, the, the, I think the fact is that our society is run by elites. I think they're certainly not the elites that we would want to be running our society right now, but they're run by elites who conspire with one another to pursue common interests. And this happens all the time. And I, I would say, I think probably all societies for all of history have been run this way. Do you think that some people just have a hard time wrapping their head around the idea that if you follow this stuff logically and you really do just do the simple thing, read what they're saying, read what they've been saying for decades, even centuries, if you look at all the writings of the elites, um, see them saying, we're going to do these things see them doing those things and pointing that out. But for it seems very obvious on the surface. Uh, it doesn't even seem like something that needs a special label of conspiracy. You could just call it the news. Like, here's what's happening. But for so many people, even often some of the smartest or most intelligent people that I know, they will still have to stop you right there and say, that just sounds a little crazy. And, yeah. and, and it's, it's weird because it, it's not, it's like you said, we're reporting, it's, it's like reporting the weather. I mean, it's not hidden. It's not this esoteric, like hidden knowledge you had to find the documents for or whatever it may be. And so I, I, I wonder how much the conditioning that we have is to the extent that it's just, it's too much to wrap our head. We can wrap our head around a serial killer. Uh, we can wrap our head around somebody going crazy, but around the institutions and our entire system being being just downright evil or run by evil people, I think is a, a much bigger leap that even the most intelligent people just can't often can't make. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all like a social psychology phenomenon. Like, I think, because if you think about it, right, like it's all conspiracy theories. Like if, if you turn on, MSNBC tomorrow and just watch that. They're just rattling off conspiracy theories. They're talking about how January 6th was an armed insurrection with a plan to install a dictator for life. I mean, that's that's a conspiracy theory. Where the hell is the evidence that that was the, the plan, you know? Um, so I think what it really all comes down to is that we are social animals and it's very deeply rooted in us to not go too far outside the pack. Like if the pack is here, mm. you could maybe be like, okay, I'm here, but I can't be out here. Cause that's just like, now I'm a, I'm, I'm like a wounded animal out in the terrain that could mm. be hunted and killed. And probably that is a survival instinct that made a lot of sense for most of human history, that you could not go that far outside of what the, you know, as Tom Woods would say, like the allowable opinion is, before it would be like, well, now you're very vulnerable because you don't have like a tribe with you. So I think that's the majority of it. I don't, I don't think most of it is really like this is, and, and this regulates a lot of even very intelligent people that you don't want to go all the way over here because if you do, then you're viewed as a, as a kook by everyone. 
So like who the hell wants to be viewed as a kook by everyone? But if you're just soberly analyzing what we're living through, you're like, I don't know. All of these people at like the World Health Organization or the World Economic Forum told us they were going to do all this crazy shit to us over the last three years, and then they did it to us. And now they're telling us they're going to do all of this. It seems to me like we should take that really seriously. We should really think like, hey, maybe they mean this. And, 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 and that doesn't mean they're going to be able to achieve it. I'm, I, I don't necessarily think they will. I'm, I'm hopeful that they won't, you know, but, um, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't be like very prepared for the possibility that maybe they can. And so I, I just, I try my best. I think what all of us should do if we're in this space of like talking about these things, well, what's the point of doing it unless we're going to just like really try to soberly analyze what's going on here? And if I'm doing that, I'm going, yeah, the not only should you be a conspiracy theorist, I would say the world runs off of conspiracies. That's essentially what guides societies. When you're sort of looking at the the big picture of this whole situation, I wonder how you, especially now that you do have kids, how you wrap your mind around sort of the, the best way to proceed knowing that um, sort of with the knowledge that our systems are largely corrupt and the the way that we were taught a lot of things is simply not true. Because I, when I was a lot younger and first started getting into that sort of conspiracy realm and, and probably into the sort of anarcho-capitalism Rothbard stuff, maybe around the same time. So I felt the evil of the state and the conspiracy stuff that was so much on my mind that it actually was maybe just an excuse I used to at the time to say, I don't want to have a family. I don't want to have kids. Who would bring kids into this corrupt world where the elites are just trying to depopulate the whole earth and they've got these Georgia guides so I guess they struck those down. They got the guidestones. They're going to reduce the population. Why am I going to bring a kid into the world that's going to when they're just going to try to cull the whole world? You know. So how do you how do you sort of take this knowledge, which everything I said is actually sort of true of, of what they want to do, uh, but still sort of go about your life as a as a man and go through the day? And how do you how do you think you can use that knowledge uh, usefully? You know, like how can you actually alter the way people act by and in, in the way you sort of speak about these things? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that um, I I don't know how much I can alter the way people act. I, I think I have, I, I probably have more influence on the way people act than most people. Than Archie. Uh, than, yeah, I mean, uh, um, but man, I really have a lot of influence over my kids. And I have a lot of influence over my wife. I have a lot of influence over my family. And so I I, I, I think that all of these things are true. Like, like, let's say all of this, like the worst of all of the things we're talking about are true. So at first you almost have to like, you, you and, and I think this is just basically what it is to exist, what it is to be a human being is like, okay, it's like, okay, so, you, so, okay, take all of that in, all of this evil, bad shit. That's right. Okay. Meditate on that for a second and then come to peace with that and then recognize the beauty that's in front of you. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, like go, I, I don't know, you ever just like go for a hike or something like that and walk up to like the top of a mountain and just look off and go, ah, man, this is the goddamn most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Like there's also beauty in the world. So there is, yes, there's all of this evil. And, and you could sit there at the top of a mountain looking off at like the most beautiful valley you've ever seen and hearing birds chirping and being this is like, like this is so incredible and also go like, yeah, there were two world wars. You know what I mean? Somewhere like, in the distance, like, an evil, yeah, like, evil elitist is plotting also, my death. <laughs> right, yes. And so, so that's life. That's what it is to be a human being, right? And so there's all of the... My, my grandfather, like, fought in the Second World War. He was a, like, a, just a soldier. Like, not even, like, anyone, like, of, of high rank. He was, and he was a Jew who lived in Germany, who was a refugee from, from, from the rise of the Nazis, then came to America and enlisted in the army and then went and fought as a foot soldier in the biggest mass murder campaign in the history of the world, right? So like that was his life. So I, I could sit here and talk about how bad like this is for me, but I like also like have some perspective, like compare to what, you know? Uh, okay, yeah, there are challenges. Um, but the, the people, the reason we're here is because someone living in like a mud hut had babies once, right. you know, like if we, if you trace it back mm -hmm. long enough. Right. So I just kind of feel like, 
look, I think all of this stuff is true, but that's not an excuse to not keep moving forward in the world and not keep, you know what I mean? And then, so anyway, but now that I have kids, it's like once you have them, it's like, okay, well, there's no, there's no going back and there's no excuses now. I can't put them away. Like, the, yeah, here they are. I've tried. <laughs> I've tried. I've made my wife lay down. I'm like, tried from every angle. You tried the like, black market thing, the, uh, the dark net, uh, <laughs> any of that stuff. <laughs> but you know what I mean? So like once you have, once I have these little kids, like, okay, well then it becomes very clear what my obligation in life is, which is to give them the best life I can possibly give them. Prepare them the most for the world that they're going to inhabit and give them the best life I can give them. And so I, I don't, I, I guess I've never had trouble like kind of swallowing in what's so hard about what today and what's so evil about our society, but then like exhaling, maybe that wasn't the good, but inhaling what's so horrible. <laughs> and then I guess you don't swallow and exhale. Inhaling what's so horrible about uh, our, our, the current like dynamic, but then exhaling kind of like, okay, but there's also so much beauty. And, you know, like I was mentioning the the stuff with my son before, you know, I mean, 30 years ago, my son would have just died. But because of medical advancements and all of that and a whole bunch of like work that really, really smart people, far smarter than me, who had no reason to do anything to help me, because of the work they did, he's not only alive, but he's fine. So goddamn, that's a miracle. What a great, what a great thing that I happen to be born in this time. So even if Klaus Schwab is out there somewhere, you know, like conspiring against me, I'm still like, okay, that's that's more important than any of that, that I was born in this time. So there's always, you know, no matter what it is, no matter what situation you're in, in, in life, um, and I guess this isn't true completely. I guess there are some situations that could be so dire that it's just like, well, this is horrible, but that's not us. And so in, it, no matter what situation you're in within reason, there, there's always probably something you could look at to be like, no, this is, it's actually pretty great what I have going for me now. And so I'm going to try my best to make this work. I'm curious how you, if you've thought about how you will approach subjects like politics or conspiracy or the stuff you already talk about uh, on your show on Part of the Problem or even the stuff you talk about on, on Legion of the Skanks as your kids get older and as they get old enough to, like, at some point they're going to hear dad's show I guess so I mean have you thought about the kind of conversations that will just naturally arise from the kind of stuff that you talk about for a living uh, when your kids start to get old enough to you know start to register some of that stuff yeah well okay so for people in my mostly my... talking about the dick jokes <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. Well, that's they're going to have to deal with that. Those have already uh, started. But yes, um, I'd say that I I think my my general attitude is that I would never insist that my kids have to uh, believe what I would that what I believe. I I would insist that my kids have to know what I believe and why I believe it. Like I, I would insist that they have to that they have to know why I feel this way. They can make up their own mind, you know, but my, my goal, and of course my kids are very young right now. Um, like my kids are four and one, you know, um, but right now what my focus is, is on teaching my kids how to think. Mm. And I think that'll be kind of my focus for a while is not teaching them like what to think, but how to think. And I, I, uh, I'm not trying to indoctrinate them into anything that I believe, but I do, uh, I insist that no one else will indoctrinate them into what they believe. <laughs> like, I certainly wouldn't allow that to happen. So nobody else will be indoctrinating my kids. I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that I am, uh, I'm in the financial position where that's not an issue. Um, and so I, I, I can make sure that my kids aren't like being indoctrinated with ideologies that I detest. But I, uh, but I, will, I will certainly introduce them to what I believe at, at some point, but I won't insist that they have to agree with me. And I, I, I'm, my thing is I'm, I'm a bit of a, uh, which I think a lot of us, uh, uh, ANCAPs or former ANCAPs are, I'm a bit of a hippie in the best sense of the term. You know, Ayn Rand once called, uh, libertarians, uh, right wing hippies. Yes. And I, I always very much liked that. Yeah. I think that's kind of what I am. I think I mean, I'm a right wing. Look at me. Yeah, I've always thought of myself as a hippie too. I just, you know, 
But I, I really Except for like all the, the bad ter- stuff, which is most of it. Yeah, but I, <laughs> but I really like the term right-wing hippie. Like, I don't know why. I just think there's something so great about that. Uh, so I, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of how I feel. That it's like, look, I want you to, uh, I want you to be able to play with these ideas. I want you to think about this, and I want you to come up with your own conclusion uh, to it. I think that to me, that just like sounds. That just feels like the correct approach. That I'm, I'm very like that right now with my kids, you know, like my, my daughter, who's she's almost five. Um, and she'll ask questions all the time, even like things about, uh, you know, like, you know, an important question. You know, I don't know if you've been around like a five year old or four and a half year old. It's they ask a lot of questions mm-hmm. and there'll be a lot of things about um, who's you know, Jeffrey the Epstein. Of, yeah. Who's Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs> Where's his client list? And I got I, a good question. No, but, you know, just things like it'd be like. About the ex- uh, existence, life. What is this? What is this? Why is the sun hot? Why does this happen? You know, like they, they always ask questions. And I, I'm very much, you know, like I'll give her some answers. And then I'm, I'm always very quick to ask her like, well, what do you think? What do you think this is? And then I like to see her kind of like work through it in her own mind and go, huh. Well, that's interesting. Maybe it's this. And I go, yeah, maybe it is that. That's a good point. But maybe it's this. And you know, like I, I like, I like to foster them thinking. So I'm not trying to like, I'm I'm not trying to make them think the same way I do. I'm not arrogant enough to think that I've got everything right, but I am arrogant enough to think that I've <laughs> that I know something important enough that they're gonna have to learn this at some point. They're gonna have to know why I feel the way I feel. They can do what they want with that. At what age do you think it's appropriate to begin watching 9-11 conspiracy documentaries? Um, you know, six is a little early. <laughs> Eight, and you've failed. Okay, so it's like somewhere in that There's a race. sweet spot somewhere, right there. Somewhere, um, if, you, if you're doing it at six, you might be jumping the gun. If you haven't done it by eight, you're a bad parent. That's I, say, what I'd say. I say that somewhat in jest, but like I think I remember I couldn't have been more than like 12 or 13 when I saw the movie JFK, which is not quite a 9-11 level, you know, type of conspiracy, but it is, it was sort of my first foray into like, oh, whoa, there's some other stuff going on here. So it it is one of those things that at some point they probably will see some movie or something, maybe now even more so because there's the internet, YouTube, who knows what weird conspiracy thing they might stumble upon uh, that they'll be like, what the, I just saw this thing. Like what, what? (laughs) Yeah, well, my my goal is to protect my kids from the internet for as long as I can. But I do think there's probably, I've always been, um, I've I've always been, I mean, literally for as long as I can remember, I've always been uh, somebody who legitimately questioned authority. I always like kind of had a feel like a feeling about like teachers and babysitters and just like like older kids in the neighborhood or whoever it was. Where I was like, I I kind of think they're full of shit. And I do, I think there's value in that. I think there's value in always, I mean, I'm not saying you should be like shitty or you shouldn't like be respectful toward others, but I think there's value in never just kind of like believing in who the figure in front of you who's older than you and therefore should be trusted is. And I'll definitely try my best to instill that in my kids. And I'll be honest, as my, my, my son's young, but my daughter, I think she's already got a lot of that in her. All right. Well, I think that's a. I think some parenting advice is a good. I mean, not advice, but at least it's your own, your own take. It's a good way to wrap things up. Right before we go into the smoke filled room, where we're going to get Ooh. a little bit weirder. Your first time is going to be fun. But before we wrap up, of course, you know, I, I feel silly doing this stuff after years of podcasting because everyone knows how to use the internet. But I guess do the thing. Tell everybody where they, where they can find everything you're doing. Oh yeah, part of the problem. <laughs> uh, Legion of Skanks, ComicDaveSmith.com. Uh, if you're happen to be listening in Europe, I'm going there in like a, a week for my first uh, my first stand up tour in Europe for for my entire career. So uh, go check that out, ComicDaveSmith.com. Uh, we're going to like uh, London and Belfast, Glasgow, Amsterdam, whole bunch of stops. So ComicDaveSmith.com. Check me out there. All right, Dave. Well, thanks for coming on my show, and uh, I'll see you in the smoke filled room. Thanks, Mark. Looking forward to it. 
All right, friends. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dave Smith. Great having him on the Mark Claire show finally. And of course, great continuing the conversation with him in the smoke-filled room as I do with every single guest. You can access the full edition of every episode by becoming a Mark Claire show premium subscriber. You can find out everything you need to know uh, on Patreon at patreon.com slash Mark Claire show, subscribestar.com slash Mark slash uh, I think it's Mark dash the dash Claire dash show. I'm pretty sure. But either way, you can find all the links over at markclaire.com. M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. Thanks to your support. I can have an editor, Bobby, who does this show for me, who helps me out. Uh, thanks to your support. I can afford the uh, platforms I need. I can afford everything I need to do for this show without sweating it. Uh, so the more support I get doing that, the less I got to sweat. And no one wants to see me sweat. Nobody needs that. My friends, thank you so much for joining me on this journey for these last 50 episodes. I promise there will be at least 50 more, probably a lot more than that. Uh, Until next time, my friends, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.